Greetings, this is Kurt. Here we continue with the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and follow on your favorite platform. We'd like to hear from you. Simply send comments, compliments, and questions to our email. If you care to be a benefactor and help in keeping these complex productions coming, it's very easy. Just buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you truly for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 12. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter 14 Flaina stood up from her seat near Gaewan in the Athenium and wandered over toward a window near Trimble's desk to look outside at the late afternoon sky. The previous evening's thunderclouds had stayed throughout the night and into this morning, breaking finally at midday to allow the suns to warm the muddy countryside and brighten the color of the mountains with their blanket of turning leaves. After a late night in the tavern with Clough, Thasgar, and Gon, they celebrated the Enchanter's return, she had slept in this morning, then spent a good part of her day in the shops of the town square, at first with Gaewan, then on her own, enjoying the townsfolk society. With the change of weather, merchants, traders, buyers, and thieves alike filled the square like ants around honey. About the middle of the afternoon, she found Gaewan hiding in his usual niche amidst a circle of chairs in a sunlit corner of the Athenium and... Not really wanting to disturb him in the midst of his studies, she allowed Trimble to find her a beginning lesson on enchant. Here. Thank you, Trimble. After a good while of being engrossed with the fascinating epistle on the philosophies of power and its existence throughout creation, she decided to give her eyes a rest. Turning away from the tall, narrow, mullioned window, she regarded Gaewan thoughtfully as he read intently, hmm. completely oblivious to his immediate surroundings. His blue eyes seemed brighter than usual as he studied his book. In stark contrast to his master, Glink was asleep, 
curled around the back of Gaewan's neck and snoring with a gentle cooing sound. Love? Yes? May I ask you a question about yesterday? With a grin, he scratched at his scalp. Be my guest, though I can't promise you'll get an answer. That's why I've been doing all this reading on Ipaya and dragons and so on. Oh, it's not about that. This may be more difficult for you to answer. Indeed. She leaned back against the shallow alcove of the window and crossed her arms. What did you mean when you called yourself an orphan? Seeing the shadow fall over his expression as he lowered his eyes, she knew she had struck a nerve. Hmm. But it was too late to retract. <clears throat> I have neglected telling you this not out of any mistrust, rather out of fear of remembering. Clough is the only one who knows about my family. If you would rather no, not... No, no. He raised an easy palm. It's not the loss that disturbs me. At least not anymore. It's the strange way in which they and all my immediate friends vanished. He closed the book in his lap and moved a finger along the edges of its pages. When I was just 12 riads old, my family was... was killed by a mysterious circumstance. In Creston on the Young Continent? Yes. He sat back and leaned on the arm of his red leather chair. That was home once. The great city of Cresden. It was my twelfth birthday, and my family held a party honoring the turn of the cycles for me. Hmm. Flana nodded absently, remembering the village gathering her parents had held for her twelfth birthday, a traditional celebration for all children marking the end of the first cycle of twelve, a time of major change when individuals began a search for their life's goals. All my friends were there, as well as some family friends' children who my parents knew well, but I didn't, except for knowing their faces. Also, there was a boy with reddish-gold hair and golden eyes whom I had never seen before except maybe in a dream. He was friendly and attentive, so I didn't bother to worry about him, assuming he was a cousin or something. He watched me strangely throughout the party, as if he knew me intimately. After the ceremonial dipping of my piece of cake in wine, I decided to ask him who he was. He never really answered, just smiled, and said he had a secret present for me. When I got a moment, we went out of the cottage garden and into the family orchard. He beamed pleasantly, lost in his memory. Hmm. As she watched and listened, Flana felt an odd oppression settling in the room, like an invisible blanket, and she wondered at the moment's significance. He led me to some familiar, hoary old plum trees, favorite ones I used to climb in the mornings to get my breakfast when the fruits were ripe. Once out of sight of our house, he leaned against a tree, cupped his hands, and told me to watch carefully. He concentrated, closed one eye, and mumbled something I didn't hear. A spark appeared above his open palms and floated. It was bright and blue and swelled into a ball of light. At that moment, there was a strange noise back at my house. It puffed of something burning instantly. And I would have gone to see what it was, but I was fascinated by the light, having never seen magic done before. 
Inside, the light appeared the shape of a man, or something like a man, with silver dragon's wings. When I leaned forward to get a closer look, he clapped his hands and shook them, scattering blue sparks everywhere that quickly faded. When I asked him what it was supposed to be, he stared me right in the eyes and said, Who is the Quicksilver Dragon and what does he want? When I asked him, What's a Quicksilver? He just threw back his head and laughed. <laughs> Getting irritated with the mystery, I reached out to grab him because I wanted an answer. He stopped me and held my arm, saying, I will die for you and you will die for me. Then he kissed me and vanished. I spun around, looking every which way, thinking he must have ducked and run away, but he was gone. I searched the orchard for a little while, gave up, and went back to my house and my family. Flaina watched as Gaewan's eyes roamed restlessly, and she knew he was at the crux of his tale. You went back to your house. But it... it was gone. I returned to find an empty, smoking hole in the ground. The entire cottage and everybody inside was gone. My father, my mother, my sisters, my friends, everyone. Gone. The only thing left were a few pieces of smoldering wood and an awful stench. It was as if a gigantic ball of fire had swallowed everything. All I could do was stand there and stare at the smoking pit. It wasn't long before I heard voices. For some reason I became frightened, thinking maybe the evil culprits had come back to kill me, and I ran to hide up in a tree within the orchard. I was expert at getting into the highest trees without falling in order to pick the best of the fruits. They used to call me Squirrel when I was younger. Carefully concealed in the leafiest branches, I watched as two of our neighbors came from the adjoining fields to see what was making the black smoke. Finding the pit and no house, they immediately went looking for my family. He stopped and stared blankly at the bookshelf across from him, his jaw working silently for a few moments. Stunned by his story, but having no idea what to say or do, Flana waited for him to continue. I did a lot of thinking while I sat in that tree. Major change had indeed occurred on my twelfth birthday. He shifted in his seat and raised his eyes to the high ceiling and the angles of its dark wooden beams. It was almost sunset at the time, and I climbed higher to avoid any chance of being seen. From up there, I could see the whole world I knew. The orchard, the grain field, all the windmills, the winding road, the crooked creek coming out of the woods, and way beyond the ocean on the horizon with majestic clouds above it turning pink and purple. I decided right then and there to leave Cresden secretly. Whoever had destroyed my home and my family would probably want to find and destroy me if they knew I was still alive, and a more immediate concern were neighbors who knew me. If I stayed, sooner or later, someone would see me, question me, perhaps even accuse me of the crime, and take me to the orphanage. <laughs> I've always had a terrific imagination. Anyway, I'd heard of the horror of the orphanage, which was not imagined, and I cared not to be trapped in a life of slavery. 
with little hope of freedom or happiness. Thus, I was believed missing or killed with the rest of my family and friends when the constables arrived. Flana could picture a boy of twelve perched high in a tree, cloaked in turning leaves, as he looked out at the horizon, an ocean breeze blowing back his hair. I left the remains of my home shortly after the neighbors went looking for help. I'd always kept a few things hidden under the grain bins of our windmill. A knife, some boots, a blanket, and a scarf, for whenever I wanted to adventure away from home for a couple of days. Where food was concerned, it was the middle of autumn, unfortunately, and most of the season's crop had been sold at market, so there was little more than feed grain and some fruit left in the bins. He blinked away some mist rising in his eyes. The last thing I had eaten with my family was my sugar cake and wine. Taking a deep breath to compose himself, he sat forward, rubbed his face, and leaned elbows on his knees. I made a couple of raw oaten sap cakes with what was left in the bins and the syrup barrels, grabbed what fruit I could carry, then headed for the city proper, remembering what I could of the hundreds of streets, which wasn't much. I had ridden to market with my father on several occasions, but Cresden was so big, especially to a child. Anyway, by the next morning, I'd made my way through the dark alleys and confusing streets to the oceanfront docks. I figured taking a ship was the quickest way to safety from whoever killed my family. Not knowing much about sailing or the life of a seaman, I'd only piloted makeshift rafts down the creek near home, I found a quiet corner and studied the docks. Around noon, a large merchant ship sailed into the harbor, and I watched dock workers and stevedores run around, busying themselves with lines and gangplanks and such. This was when I first noticed a boy, an elf, running around with them. He'd grown his hair long and tied a kerchief around his head, presumably to hide his pointed ears. But when he helped tug a heavy rope, the kerchief slipped, and I saw them. He seemed roughly my age, thus he captured my attention. I became more curious when I realized he hadn't come from the merchant ship. In fact, elves are a rarity in Cresden. They tend to keep to their forests and secret harbors. After the elf boy helped a seaman tie off three lines which secured the ship's stern to the dock, he was given a whole silver piece and patted on the head. I followed him into a nearby tavern. I was getting hungry by then, having devoured my chewy oat cakes and fruit early that morning after the very long walk. It didn't take long for him to notice his new shadow, and he spun around to offer me his hand, saying, I'm Cluff, who are you? It was quite a surprise not to be run off. We became fast friends, Clough buying me lunch in exchange for my story. Of course, I was delighted to find someone who listened. It was then that he chose to teach me about the freethinker way of life. Thus, I understood that though I had suffered a tragic loss, I needn't mourn for the dead. I came to know they had gone on to the inner planes and future incarnations. He finally rested his gaze upon Flana. If it hadn't been for Clough, I might never have stopped crying on the inside, so deep was the pain. 
To keep my thoughts off my loss, Clough started right away teaching me how to help weary or lazy seamen or other workmen in exchange for trinkets or money. This was almost always profitable, especially when a military ship or a large merchant ship with a haul of goods came into port. The sailors were usually in a generous mood, eager to spend their money on women and wine. With our help, they got there sooner. It wasn't long after that when we caught the attention of an admiral who was short-handed due to a demanded increase in sailors' pay which few could meet. His ship, the Sea Scout, was a commissioned royal explorer with duties of defending the seaways which was the main catalyst behind the pay increase. There had been a rising number of Asm dragons seen, and two had attacked ships following the coastal ways. Many sailors were too scared to chance facing the giant serpents of lightning, and thought to wait out the season until things quieted down. After watching Clough and me help sailors from several other ships, the Admiral introduced himself. Bulkan was his name, and he posed us with an offer free passage to any place we wished in exchange for serving as commissioned cabin boys aboard the Sea Scout for at least one riad. This was a blessing, for there was no possible way Clough and I could have scratched enough silver to afford buying passage on a merchant ship. Also, the master of the orphanage was snooping around the docks, having also heard about the two strong lads culling coins for work. No doubt he wanted our strong backs to work for him for free. Needless to say, we took Bulkin's offer, and after a riad plus a few moons, he sailed us into Bell Bay, south of Hopetown. He was so pleased with our work that he paid for a carriage to take us to a friend of his retired from the sea. This man, whom we never met, was to have given us living quarters until we got started on our own. We never saw his home, or even hope down that riad. Highway robbers heisted our carriage. Fortune had it that Clough was alert at the time, and he jumped off, pulling me with him before the robbers had a chance to stop us. We ran like rabbits until we were sure we had gotten away. After a day of wandering in the forest, we happened across a band of traveling minstrels. They welcomed our company as mundane taskers at first, and we cleaned and cooked for them until they discovered how well Clough and I could play the instruments and present funny songs and ballads. After that, we were part of the troupe. We traveled with them for several moons until they came to Hopetown. Clough and I wanted to start working on our own, so we left the minstrels and were immediately hired by Marshal Garnett. He's always short of men to help ward off raiders on the farms and the town during harvest. Between that and doing chores for the Brass Dragon's kitchen, we did rather well. And once people saw we were honest, we had no trouble finding other odd jobs. After a while, we hoarded enough money to start paying for training in our respective skills. Clough began swordsmanship lessons with one of the marshal's deputies, and I began my study of the mystic arts. He looked awkwardly at his fingers as he drummed them on his book. I'm sorry, but I do seem to have rambled a bit. Flana smiled warmly as she sat down in a chair opposite him. It's quite all right. I've wanted to know more about your past. He shrugged contritely. Mm, forgive me for not telling you sooner. 
She rolled her eyes with amusement. <laughs> you were probably listening to me talk and didn't have a chance. Besides, it takes time together before couples can open up completely to each other. Love may be quick, and in our case, deep, but trust takes time. The longer our time together, the more complete the trust. Your mother taught you that. Of course. She discovered all the talk about family brought up a longing to see her parents and her home village. How did you feel going back to Creston? When I was to meet with Rothson? Yes, you took Molly down with you too. I didn't want to leave him here when I didn't know how long I was going to be with Rothson. And he didn't mind the voyage. I made sure to book passage on a livestock barge with room for him to exercise as we sailed. As for how I felt seeing Cresden again, he quirked his mouth back and forth as he thought about it for a moment. It was interesting, seeing how the city has grown, but I've no attachments to it. I did stop to check the records in the city scriptures, just to see what might have been recorded about me or my family. I found mention of a flash fire in the farms that killed my family and several other children. It was strange seeing my name listed as one of the assumed dead. Assumed? He grimaced ruefully. Mm, there were no bodies left behind, just black smoke. He searched his feelings as a shipwright might hammer on a ship's futtocks, seeking weakness and leaks. The ever-present dull pang of remembering the loss echoed back at him, as well as the unanswered questions about what truly happened to orphan him. But these were familiar flaws, pain to which he had grown accustomed, and he let the matter go. I'm sorry you had to be reminded of all that. She reached across to caringly touch his hand. He shook his head, dispelling his somber expression, and smiled with a twinkle in his eye. I'll be all right. Now, how about some fun? Fun? All of a sudden, he vanished from sight then reappeared in a chair beside her, pulling her close as the book he had been holding slipped off his lap onto the floor. Do you know how beautiful you are? What? Bewildered, she glanced first at him, then at where he had been sitting just an instant before. How, how did you... One of the lessons I studied this morning. Relocation. I've been waiting to try it out. Did you know... He nuzzled her hair... You have the most delicately shaped ears I've ever seen. Like full-blooded elves, Flaina's ears were an erotic center, and she couldn't help pulling away as he lightly kissed her left earlobe. Torn between arousal and regret for withdrawing, she hoped he would persist. Tremble might not like us doing that here. Take me somewhere alone. Put your arms around my waist. He kept his arms tight about her shoulders. She felt her heart skip a beat. They landed on their rears on the ground just outside the doors to the Athenium. Disoriented, she glanced around the street as she let go of his waist. He grinned boyishly as the mudcat around his neck awoke, questioning the abrupt jolt and change of atmosphere. Flaina opened and closed her mouth twice before finding her wits. <laughs> Look, Link. I've found a big fish for you. Are we really out here? 
Let's make sure, shall we? He dug fingers into her ribs. Ah! That tickles! Behave yourself! She reached over, hugged him close, and returned the gesture mercilessly. Oh, no! Stop that! Stop that! I, I just... I just wanted to convince you that, that we're really... Deciding he had paid sufficiently... And at least double for his crime. (laughs) She let him go and whacked a finger at him. Just watch who you tangle with, Gay (laughs) Wan. Yes, yes. (sighs) You triumph as usual. (laughs) Shall we call it a day and celebrate your victory? I would expect nothing less. She deigned to grant him her hand. My lady. He scrambled to his feet and helped her up. Is this more appropriate? She peered down her nose at him. We shall decide when full court meets. For now, however, you may get us our supper. I am forever grateful. He offered her an arm and escorted her down the street. The clear sky darkened rapidly into the even, giving way to the first stars as the waning moon climbed above the distant hills, an oblong circle of mottled blue and green. Gaywan and Flena strolled through the deserted town square where the last of the costermongers and shops had closed their carts and houses for the night. Empty chairs of the open-air taverns were strewn about like so many fallen soldiers. Content in each other's company, Enchanter and Half-Elf failed to notice four men who appeared quietly out of a recess between shop houses to walk along behind them. Glink, however, still riding on Gaewan's shoulders, saw the men and surveyed them with feline curiosity, alerting his master. Through his wardmate, Gaewan observed the four strangers and made a quick assessment. The confident stride and burning stare of the man in front marked him as their leader, while two more shadowed his footsteps and glanced furtively to each side. A fourth covered their rear. With Glink's nocturnal vision, he could see two of the men's faces were almost as scarred as their gambesons. Battle veterans, and their intentions are anything but friendly. He squeezed Flayna's elbow gently and was about to mutter a warning when the lead man behind them noticed Glink. He sees us. Now! Stilettos appeared in their hands and before Gaewan could react, he and Flayna stiffened at the prick of sharp points in their backs. Into the alley! You're making a mistake! They were jostled and shoved into a dark walkway squeezed between closed shop houses. His hands were grabbed, twisted behind him, and held against his back. Cut the wise lips, enchanter! The leader stepped around to face his captives. Regarding Flaina for a moment, he apparently decided she was of no consequence and nodded at a cohort. The rogue jerked her aside and flattened her against the wall, his blade poised to plunge into her heart. Forgive our intrusion on your evening with this courtesan. I will make this brief. Give me your crystal, and you and your bed companion may walk out of here unharmed. 
Gaewan quickly determined this man was no common thug, especially for him to use proper titles, and to know that mages and enchanters needed use of their hands for most defensive spells. But how does he know of the crystal? This had to be another ambush sent by Calron, an attempt to obtain the crystal without being seen. The only reason he and Flaina hadn't been slaughtered immediately was that Calron and his thugs did not know where he kept the crystal, which at the moment was sitting in its pouch under his cloak left back at the Athenium. He noted the collection of daggers and dirks on the leader's belt, though the man's hands were empty at the moment, demonstrating confidence in his cohorts. The cold stare meeting his gaze made obvious how tenuous their survival truly was. Neither myself nor Flaina are meant to leave this alley alive. Worse, the henchman on her looked too anxious to remain rational for very long, his hands already moving hungrily along her legs. To what crystal do you refer? You sure this is the one he wanted? Shut up, you. Just hold him. His eyes narrowed in consideration and uncertainty. Perhaps I didn't make myself clear, Enchanter. He nodded shortly at Flaina's captor. Eh. With a gleeful, half-toothless grin splitting his scarred face, <laughs> the rogue slugged her backhanded, knocking her head to the side. Her eyes burned with indignation. Hand over the crystal or we run the whore through. The rage of seeing his consort abused surged in Gaewan's mind and threatened to overcome his internal restraint, but he fought the anger down, a lucid voice in his mind warning that unchecked emotion might completely destroy any ability of invoking a spell. Quickly, he thought of a ruse that might give him the needed advantage. Seeking the necessary images he had just practiced. All right, all right, I'll do anything you say. He then vanished. What? On cue, Flaina bit hard on the hand over her mouth. The rogue jerked back his arm, no! too late realizing his mistake. She slammed her knee into his groin, making him double over, then knocked the knife from his hands and crashed her fist onto the back of his head. He fell to the cobblestones. Reappearing instantly behind his mark, Gaewan sidekicked the man's spine. The bewildered thug buckled backward and crumpled. Glink jumped from his master's shoulders and scampered out to the square. The fourth man, watching the alley's entrance, dashed into the fight, grabbing Flaina before she knew he was upon her. Snatching a handful of her hair, he yanked her back and kicked legs out from beneath her. She hit the ground next to her first captor, the wind knocked out of her. Gaewan tried to jump to her aid, but was immediately caught in a stranglehold, the leader's elbows scissoring around his neck. I warned you, Enchanter. A blade pressed against Gaewan's throat. Flaina's new attacker held her with a booted foot and looked for orders from the leader. Give us the damned crystal. No! He pulled unsuccessfully at the muscular arm constricting his windpipe. Flaina fought to get up, but her opponent kicked her back down. Oh, bastard! Cut her! The fourth rogue grinned nastily, twirled his blade, then raised his arm for a vicious stab. In that instant, overcome with the rage writhing intensely in his mind, 
Gaewan lost control and discovered his advantage. The leader was frightened of the clawing predator replacing the man he had been strangling. Vaulting with its powerful hind legs, the were-tiger shoved his captor to the ground and erupted across the space between him and Flaina's attacker. Rogue and Cat rolled further into the alley's shadow. For the first time since suffering his initial shape change, Gaewan allowed the bestial urge full reign over his awareness and rejoiced in the sensation of tremendous power surging through his limbs. His fury, freed from its comparatively puny human frame, savaged the frail man beneath his razor claws. The scent of fresh blood quivered in his nostrils, yet he had no desire for feeding on it. He realized control within the chaos of his were instincts and shifted easily from one awareness to the other without conflict. He was the tiger. The tiger was he. Plena rose to her feet and found the group's leader facing her a few paces away. Unsheathing her dagger, she stepped back toward the white tiger, now leaving the flattened fourth rogue's body. Ignoring the throbbing pain in her jaw, she coolly considered her options. Thieves are nothing more than low-life, lazy irritants, but gutless slots who prey on women are deviants that need to be eliminated. She felt the were-tiger standing close beside her. The leader shakily lifted both arms above his head in surrender, but she didn't trust the calculating gleam in his eye. Come any closer, and you're both dead. His hands grasped something on each wrist. Throwing blades from concealed sheaths appeared from his sleeve. He didn't sense the tall figure slipping up behind him. Two strong hands gripped both arms and folded them backward with a snap forcing him flat to the cobblestones. Several townsfolk with lanterns in hand had emerged from their houses to see what was going on. Another short fellow, with a mudcat curled around his neck, came up and kicked the rogue hard on the knee. Gone! And the Hesgar! Though she knew of Gaewan's immunity to blades while in his altar form, she had not known how she could have defended herself against the deadly throwing knives that now clattered harmlessly to the ground. Resting a firm boot on the rogue's sternum, Thasgar glanced down at his friend. He's all yours. Aye. <laughs> the dwarf nodded acknowledgement and snatched one of the rogue's hands, then began twisting fingers. Gon kicked the leader's knee again. The man tried to curl away. My friend doesn't like being shouted at. Thasgard left Gon to reshaping knuckles and walked hesitantly towards the large cat and Flaina. Though unbothered by his friend being a were-tiger, he wasn't sure how much control the human Gawon possessed over the beast Gawon. Ice blue eyes assessed him silently, and he felt his blood chill, his hand straying near his sword. Uh. To his immediate relief, the animal shape faded, blending into the shadows. <coughs> Relaxing, Thasgar stepped forward and offered Gawan a hand as he stood up from all fours. Are you all right? He cast a glance beyond at the gruesome form bleeding on the ground. Hmm. That fellow won't be bothering anyone for a good long while. Serves him right. 
Gaywan brushed off his clothes. I fear Flaina took more of a beating than me. He hugged her, then inspected her face. Mm. She grimaced at him, a tender pain radiating from her eyes. I'll be all right. She touched the darkening spot on her jaw. Bastards. Many thanks and blessings upon you, my friend. Gaywan gripped the archer's shoulder. Shall we collect the marshal while you hold them? Not necessary. We'll just hog time and drag them down to Garnett's post. We've been wanting to rub these boys' noses in the dirt for a while. This one, I don't like. Gan inspected the forefinger on the leader's right hand, then twisted it brutally. Shut up, or I'll bust another one. The curious townsfolk had gathered at the alley's opening and muttered speculations amongst themselves. We suspected them of sticking a couple of unwilling servant girls a few nights ago in the alley, so we decided to watch them. They picked up this leader fellow just today and started eyeballing Flaina. Smelling like trouble all day long. Gon tied a cord tightly around his captive's wrists. We lost him a short bit ago, but then your cat came running just now and clued us to where you were being held. We are in your debt. The Enchanter did not want to discuss the shadow of Calron on the ambush until later. I go home. You don't owe us a thing. Take care of Flaina. We'll see you in the morning. You heard him, love. She grasped his hand, and they walked out of the alley, steering wide around Gon, tending to the lead road. Sidling through the onlookers in the square, Flaina stopped Gawan with a gentle tug and looked at him worriedly. You didn't answer, Thasgar. Are you all right? Me? Well, I think so. Why? I worry when you shape change. Worry that you're not... Not in control. He smiled reassuringly and pulled her close to his side. I'd probably be scared, too, if the situation was reversed. But don't fret, love. My body may change shape, but not my mind. What about the one you attacked? Did you... No. No, I, I did not bite him. I will not pass my curse on to others. She searched his eyes with hers, trying to feel out his thoughts. Is this simple bravado? The familiar sparkle in his eye was persuasive, however. Nodding with relief, she then rested her head on his shoulder. <sighs> I believe you. Take me home. Leaving the square, they heard the low moans of pain from the fallen thieves as Thasgar solicited help from the onlookers in dragging his prisoners to the lockup. Assured that their friends had matters well in hand, Gawan and Flaina headed down the street toward the Brass Dragon Tavern, the mudcat bounding after them in cheerful chase. Silently, the enchanter wondered just where Calron was hiding and what his next strategy might be, knowing it would be fruitless to try and search for him. Somehow, I have to get the upper hand. Bridge of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. 
The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 12 are performed by Jim Marshall, Darcy Aridell Hotelling, Puffin, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels, Making Up a Quintology, with more on the way, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price, shipped to you, with additional bonuses from the author. Merely submit a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios, Mix Kit of Victoria, Australia, SoundDogs.com, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe. Thank you.